Hey, good morning. Thank you, Steve, very much. So we're in a series we're calling Follow, and our, our premise is this. Not only has Jesus called uh, men and women to himself in the past, but that's still something he's doing, you know, today in this moment. He's going to do that uh, with some of you this morning. Uh, so listen, you know, m- most of you know, during the month of July, I was out, my family and I were out on sabbatical that actually got extended. I want to walk you through a little bit. I'm just like you guys. So, um, God's teaching me things all the time, reminding me of truths. And so I want to walk you through, um, two truths that God reminded me of when I was on sabbatical. And then I'll tell you why. So the first is this life is fragile. And you don't have to look beyond the news these days, right, to look at what's going on in Afghanistan, what's going on in Haiti, what's getting ready to happen again in New Orleans. I mean, we just know from looking at the news, life is fragile, but God reminded me of that up close. And then secondly, eternity is certain for all of us. Because life is fragile, eternity is certain. So uh, we were scheduled in early July to take an extended family trip out to Denver, Colorado to visit with my brother. And about four days before we were going to take that trip, uh, I got a phone call that my father had passed away. So we had to scrap uh, that vacation. And instead of going to Colorado, we had to go to West Virginia so that I could speak at my dad's funeral and then scatter his ashes. It was his desire to be cremated. And then, um, and so, you know, we did that. Um, And then a few weeks later, my daughter Jamie was scheduled to have surgery uh, to fix uh, uh, what they thought was one problem. Uh, They got in there and they found an entirely different problem. So they just closed her up and uh, we're going to start kind of a new journey there. You know, we're just trying to uh, figure out her healing journey as well. And so this is why I say that, you know, life is fragile, And that eternity, you know, again, is looming. And then, uh, and this is why the psalmist said, this is uh, David, he said in Psalm 39, 4, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think that's something that God was teaching me on my sabbatical. The idea is this, look, if we, if we recognize instead of trying to hide from it, instead of trying to suppress the fact that our days are numbered, if we embrace it, if we accept it, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll ring dry, right? Every single day, we'll be present in every single moment because we'll remember that we only get so many. And every once in a while, an event will come along that'll remind you with that truth. Uh, for example, I remember um, I'd been here about five years. I was in Greenwood. I was coming back to Shelbyville. I was driving south on Interstate 65. And I noticed that there was a truck passing me in the passing lane. I was in the slow lane. And I kind of looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw that the bumper of this truck was super duper close to my car. And right at the time I turned over, the truck kind of bumped me and it nudged me and it nudged me about here. And when it did, my back wheels went like this. And pretty soon the truck was pushing me down the interstate at 65 miles an hour. And he'd hit me so softly, he didn't even realize that I was there. And what began to happen is the glass on my side of the car began to break. This bar right here began to crumple. The roof began to cave in. And so I kind of thought, okay, this is how 
you know, I'm going to die. And I remember thinking at one point as he continued to push me down the road, well, maybe I should, because this side was caving in. So I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, get out and get in the passenger seat and buckle that seatbelt. And then I've got more of a, more of a buffer, you know, between me and this truck and my tires were squealing, smoke was coming up. And I think it was the smoke coming off my tires that got this truck driver's attention. So I think he thought something was wrong with the uh, with his engine so he pulled over off the side of the road with me firmly buckled underneath his truck got out walked around the front and when he saw my car buckled up under the front of his truck I mean it looked like he was about ready to pass out but I I remember for for weeks after that I was so grateful to be alive you know to have a mission uh, and, I, and I just count it every day. But what happens is daily life creeps in, it creeps in, and we forget, right? We forget. And this is why it's so important to be intentional about following Jesus every single day. Because here's why. If you're not careful, I mean, you're, you'll just start living out your agenda for life and you will neglect his agenda for your life. Now, when Jesus calls these first four disciples... Uh, in Matthew 4, he makes his agenda for them really clear right from the very beginning. Uh, He says, uh, look, if you follow me, I'm going to make you into something that you're not right now. And I think if we were writing the script here, we would expect Jesus to say something like this. Hey, follow me and I'll make you more disciplined. Follow me and I'll make you a better person. Follow me and I will make you more spiritual. Follow me and I'll make your marriage better. Follow me and I'll make you smarter. Because after all, Jesus was the smartest man who's ever lived. But when he calls these four men, he doesn't say any of those things. In fact, what he tells them probably confused them because it wasn't something they knew they needed. It wasn't something they necessarily wanted to become. It wasn't even on their radar. But yet Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, why would Jesus say it like that? Well, it's because they were fishermen. I mean, if Jesus were Uh, speaking to a factory worker that made widgets, he would say, follow me and I'll make you a maker of men. If he were talking to an architect, he would say, follow me and I will make you a designer of men. If he were talking to a home builder, he would say, follow me and I'll make you a builder of men. If he were talking to a nurse or a doctor, right, he would say, follow me and I'll make you a healer, not just of bodies, but of souls and for all eternity. If he were talking to a banker or a stock broker. He would say, follow me and I will make you an investor of men. If he were talking to a land developer, he would, he would say, follow me and I'll make you a developer of men. In other words, he was saying, I'm going to use your life to bring value to other people every single day in my name. And that's not just for today and tomorrow. That's going to ripple out onto eternity. And even though this wasn't something that was on their radar, it wasn't a felt need, they followed him anyway. And I want to tell you why. 
See, we know from Luke 5 that Jesus had taken them fishing the day before, and at his direction, they caught more fish than they'd ever caught in their life. And the directions that Jesus gave them were counterintuitive. They weren't something they would have done. And so they knew that there was something special about this rabbi. And that, so when the next day, when he comes and calls them, they know that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, they've never met anyone like this man. Uh, And so Jesus says this, look, to follow my agenda for you as a follower is for you to fish. To follow is to fish. To follow is to enrich the lives of others both now and for eternity. And it's so counterintuitive, right? Here's what I would just say. None of us said yes to Jesus to become fishers of men. Nobody said, yoo-hoo, I just won the lottery. I get to be a fisher of men. I get to bring values to others, right? Uh, No, my agenda is this. There's something painfully obvious about the difference between God's agenda and me following and my agenda. See, when many of us become followers of Jesus, becoming a fisher of men is the last thing we wanted. Nobody signs up to follow Jesus to become a fisher of men. Now, we wanted God to do lots of other things for us. We wanted God to solve our crisis. We wanted God to cure our health. We wanted God to repair our marriage or to rescue our our children. And here's why this is important. All of us, me and you, come to God with an agenda. And that's normal. God understands this. His grace and mercy is enough. And I I believe nobody understands this better than Jesus. Nobody's more accepting of this than Jesus. But let's be clear. The vast majority of Christians come into the Christian life as a consumer of Jesus, not as a follower of Jesus. In other words, we come to God with our agenda and we hope God will take our agenda and run with us. Uh, run with it. And that's and most of us came to Jesus that way, you know, in the beginning as a consumer and not a follower. But here's my point. At some point we have to be willing to offer up our agendas for what we want God to do in our lives for his. So what we're going to do today is we're going to see how far south it can go when we approach Jesus only out of our own agenda and we refuse to let go of that. When we neglect the fact that God also has an agenda and that his will cannot be thwarted. And to do that, we're going to take a look at one of Jesus' disciples. It's a disciple that has a terrible reputation. It's about the disciple that would go on to betray Jesus and hand him over to people that wanted to harm him. And this was a disciple named Judas. Now, Judas saw Jesus exactly like the other apostles did, especially in the beginning. His agenda, their agenda for Jesus was that Jesus was going to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. 
And in doing so, Israel was going to become a national presence and a world power. And Jesus was going to lead that charge. He would come to be known around the world as the Messiah or the Savior of the world. So in his mind, Jesus would take the throne of Israel, use it to conquer Rome violently, and then the whole world would be under the leadership of this Jewish king, this Jewish Messiah. And early on, and for most of his ministry, all of his disciples thought he was going to be that guy. He was going to be the one that was going to rescue them from Roman oppression. And so that was their agenda for him. For them, Jesus was a means to an end. As Jesus gained power, they would gain power. This is why they would look at Jesus and say things like this. Hey, when you come to, th to the throne, will you grant that one of us can sit on your left and on your right? But because again, Jesus was a means to an end. But there was a problem. And the problem was Jesus was moving too slowly. He was alienating religious leaders. I mean, hey, Jesus, if we're going to have a movement, we're going to need the workers in the temple behind us. You can't go around saying you're greater than the temple. Hey, Jesus, if we're going to have a movement, you've got to quit alienating these religious leaders. We're going to need them on our side. You're creating disunity, Jesus, when what we need is a unified presence. See? And so, one day, an incident happens that was the last straw for Judas. It was literally the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed him over the edge. And I want to tell you this story because the truth is there's a little bit of Judas in you and there's a little bit of Judas in me. There's, in other words, when I say that, here's what I mean. There is something in you and there is something in me that wants to come to God with our own agenda and to desperately hope that he will check all those boxes for us. So Matthew, who was there, tells us in Matthew 26, 6 through 9, listen to what he says. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, we don't know much about this man, but while they were in this home, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and money given to the poor. So when Jesus allows this woman to pour this very expensive perfume and it's running down his hair and over his beard, a discussion ensues among his disciples. Like, man, that seems pretty wasteful. I mean, we could have taken that money and we could have sold it and used it for the poor. Now, John, who was also in the room, adds a detail that Matthew does not. This is in John 12. Listen to what he says. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So in other words, Judas is the one who kicked this whole discussion off. He's the one who incited the other disciples to believe that this was uh, wasteful on Jesus' part. So he says, he objects and he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, aren't you touched by Judas's uh, love for the poor? Aren't you ashamed at how much more Judas loves the poor than you and I do? 
Well, that's not why he said it. Look at verse 6, what, he, what John goes on to say. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Because as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, in other words, the reason that Judas incited this is because he recognized, wow, if we could have taken that perfume and sold it, that would have been more money for me to use for myself. So that's why he starts this whole objection. And uh, so, yeah, that's just an important detail to know. Now, um, Jesus always seemed to know what other people were thinking. So like in the Gospels, you didn't, if you were in Jesus' presence, you didn't want to think a bad thought because Jesus was going to talk about that. You didn't want to have like a question or be critical or cynical because if you did, Jesus was going to talk about that. And you see that happen here. Look what it goes on to say in Matthew. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he quotes a verse that politicians use all the time. Now you're going to know the context. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now listen, Jesus told his disciples again and again and again that he was going to die and in three days be raised from the dead. And every single time, you know what they would do? Jesus, you got to knock it off. You got to quit talking about death, burial, decay, and dying. You got you to knock that off because you can't conquer Rome if you're laying in a grave. See, their agendas wouldn't even let them hear what Jesus was really saying. So then he goes on, I tell you the truth. This is so amazing to me. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Friends, we are fulfilling Jesus' prediction in this story right now. Because those, those disciples became fisher of men, and we're part of their legacy. We're here today because of their message. And I asked myself, how could Jesus have known? Here he is in a dusty little hick town, in a little small country tucked away in the middle of nowhere, and yet he would say one day this story is going to be told and every time it is told, it's going to be told in, um, you know, in memory of her. This is just incredible to me, absolutely amazing. And then look what happens next, Matthew 26 verses 14 through 15. One of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? That was it. He snapped in that moment. Jesus, if you're going let, to let us spend our money irresponsibly and use our money in a way that I can't benefit from it, I'm out. I'm out. So they counted, verse 16, so they counted out 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas looked for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, this is mind-boggling to me. I mean, do you remember Judas? The afternoon you thought you were going to drown in a boat and Jesus spoke to the weather? 
Apparently not. Do you remember Jesus, the time Jesus called a dead man out of a tomb? I mean, don't you remember, Judas, the day he took a small basket of loaves and fish and fed 10,000 people? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. But listen, isn't it true that sometimes you and sometimes I approach Jesus in a way that's kind of similar isn't it true that we all talk to God from time to time as if he's someone we think we can manipulate or call into our world to accomplish our own selfish agendas? So here's the way this works. We say things like this. Hey, God, I want you to help me get through college, but I'm not taking you on spring break. Hey, I'm not taking you on that business trip, God, but I want you to bless my business. Hey, God, I'm not going to be generous about the things you care about, but I want you to bless me financially. I mean, this goes on and on. So Judas does what we try to do, right? He tries to force Jesus' hand. He thinks that somehow he is going to hand Jesus over to the people that want to harm him. And, and he's going to learn the really, really hard way, what I hope we can learn together this morning, the easy way, and that is this, that God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. Now, for 2,000 years, people have tried to figure out why in the world Judas would do this. And I'm going to share with you the prevailing theory. It's really more than a theory. It's more of an educated guess. It's certainly the educated guess that I subscribe to. Judas had an agenda. Judas thought that he could force Jesus to come out and proclaim himself the king of Israel because Jesus just wasn't moving fast enough. He was going too slow. He believed that perhaps if he delivered Jesus over to his enemies, that Jesus wasn't about to let something bad happen to himself. In fact, he had heard Jesus say, hey, look, at any time I could call a legion of angels and they would come and defend me. And Judas heard that and he believed that. He believed that Jesus could, could at any moment call a legion of angels, angels that would come to his defense defense. So Judas just wanted to speed up the process and gain more power and get a little bit richer while doing it. So the story of how this goes down is in Matthew 27. You should check it out. But there's a point in the story where things go terribly wrong for Judas because Instead of handing Jesus over to the religious authorities like they should have done, like Judas thought that they would, they hand him over instead to Pilate, the governor, who's a Roman citizen. They weren't supposed to do that. See, he thought, Judas thought that what was going to happen is they were going to arrest Jesus they were going to try him. They were going to punish him according to the Jewish law, which means they would take a whip embedded with little shards of metal and glass, and they would beat him up to 40 times with that whip, and then they would let him go. That's what Jewish law called for. That's what Judas thought was going to happen. But instead, 
Um, see, here's what he knew. He knew that the Jewish religious groups did not have the political clout or the authority to crucify someone, to put someone to death. Only Rome could do that. But unfortunately for Judas, the governor, Pilate, the governor was Roman. See? So we're going to look at this in the next three verses. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And then look what it says in verse 4. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He knew. I mean, he knew. And then look at the last verse. Uh, what, what is that to us? The religious leaders replied. That's your responsibility. I mean, look, they're just simply saying to Jesus, hey, look, you're the one who made the decision. I mean, you're the one who did the deed. You know, and it's, isn't it true that there are just certain decisions that once you make them, you can't unmake them, you can't come back from that? I mean, God may be able to forgive you, but it's not going to change your circumstances. And this is exactly where Judas was. And then look at Matthew 27, 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. See, for Judas, this decision gone wrong was impossible to live with because this decision didn't turn out like he planned. The agenda that he tried to force on Jesus turned out to go extremely bad. So now Judas is gone. Jesus has been arrested. He's been tried. He's been crucified and he dies. But still God's hand can't be forced and his will can't be thwarted. So in this crazy Hollywood kind of way, Judas, by trying to force his own agenda on Jesus, actually becomes an accidental player in the story of your salvation and of mine. See, and it's so crazy because God's will was actually accomplished in this horrible story that Jesus had been predicting all along, but no one would listen to. See, because Jesus, and here's what's so amazing about this story and why all this matters so much today, because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and his resurrection from the dead changed everything. Now, you may be asking this morning, okay, well, fine. What does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? Well, listen, when we begin to follow Jesus, we all start like this. I have a plan, and God, I want you to help me with it. I have a hurt, and I need you to heal it. I have a need, and I need you to meet it. I have a crisis, and I need you to solve it. Uh, and that's not necessarily bad. Listen, I want, you, I want you to hear me say, God understands that that's the way that we come to him. He gets it. His mercy and his grace is sufficient for that. But at some point, we have to become men and women that are willing to say, God, I'm going to exchange my agenda for yours. 
And I want to be honest. Every time you do this, it's going to feel like a death. Every single time. Because sometimes our agendas are so central to how we think and live. They are so much a part of us that we just don't know how we can live without it. So God, I just don't know how I can live without him. God, I just don't know how I can live without her. God, I just don't know how I can live without that. It's, I mean, I've built my life on this. See, this is why. But it's in those moments that you begin to discover that you have moved from simply being a consumer of Jesus to a follower of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus did this for you and Jesus did this for me. He prayed this prayer. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was waiting for him. And by the way, remember, there was no more excruciating way to die than on a cross. And he looked at his heavenly father and he said, hey, I'd prefer not to do this, but yeah. See, Jesus led the way in this kind of prayer. So here is a prayer I want us all to pray this morning. I'm going to lead you through it in a moment. Here's what it is. God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. Now, being the fact that I'm a pastor who is also can sometimes be sinful and selfish, I know how hard that prayer is for some of you to pray. I know that most of us in the room may not be able to pray that prayer with honesty and integrity. God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. So I'm going to give you some wiggle room. That's okay. It's okay that you're not there. God gets it. Here's what we're going to pray instead. God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I'm not there. Right today, right now, in this moment, I don't want to want, I don't want more you know what I'm trying to say. So hard. There's a lot of wants in here. There really are. No, we're not saying, hey, look, I want what you want more than what I want. We're saying, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I think if any of us are here and we just love Jesus a little bit, that's a prayer, right, that we can pray with integrity. In other words, God, make me that kind of man. I'm, I'm moldable. I'm clay. I'm willing. Listen, his disciples for three years, there were setbacks and there were drawbacks. But one day, those four men, they all became fishers of men because at some point with all the setbacks and all the disappointments, they learned what Jesus said they would become came true. And you and I are in church this morning partly because they owned that message and became fishers of men. Now, I've said this morning that God's agenda is for us to fish. And I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about my dad. So I mentioned at the beginning of this message that in early July, I came home and I, I talked at his funeral. And the thing you need to know about my dad is he was an agnostic. In fact, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I was in college and I was in a car with my father and I told him that I had just become a Christian. And he said, these are his exact words to me. He said, you don't want to become a Christian. Christians are stupid and Christians are weak. 
And I didn't raise you to be stupid or to be weak. Christianity is a crutch for people who can't think for themselves and who can't bear life on their own. So I said to my dad, dad, listen, if that's really your perspective, you'd be doing me a favor because I don't want to waste my life on something that isn't true or something that isn't real. So I challenged my dad. I said, hey, let's say we do a Bible study together through the book of John. And you, if you can show me, you know, how this isn't true and how all this was a waste, then you'd be doing me a huge favor, dad, because I'm telling you, apart from this, I'm going to go into, into my, into life as a min- I'm going to go into ministry and I don't want to throw my, way, my life away on something that isn't true or isn't real. Now, my dad declined that invitation. But for many, many decades, we had conversation after conversation after conversation. And I'd see him move a little bit and just a little bit. But to my knowledge, I want to be very honest. My dad seems to have died an agnostic. I have no evidence that he ever came to faith. But I want to tell you a story that gives me hope. So one day I get a phone call from my dad. And my dad starts the conversation this way. He's giddy. He's just like so excited. He says, hey, guess what? I said, what? He said, guess who, guess who witnessed to my neighbor? That's his exact phrase. Guess who witnessed to my neighbor? I said, dad, I don't know who witnessed to your neighbor. He said, I did. I said, what are you talking about, dad? He said, well, you know, I, I, I go to visit my neighbor a couple of times a week. He's lonely. He's uh, dying. He knows it. So he was telling me how he wished he could get out and go to church and that he wasn't sure what was going to happen to him after he died. So I told him first about the thief on the cross and how the thief couldn't go to church, but Jesus said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise, right? So, hey, if you just trust Jesus right where you are in your chair, you know, you don't have to go to church necessarily to go to heaven. He said, and then I talked to him about Jesus. I talked to him about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, And I told him that if he would just trust Jesus as his, he didn't use these exact words, but as his forgiver and his leader and have an open mind and an open heart to Jesus and invite him in to begin to change his life, that he could know where he was going to go after he died. I mean, guys, I about dropped the phone. So I said to my dad, dad, why would you share with your neighbor a message that you yourself don't even believe? And he said, well, I didn't need to believe it. He needed to believe it. So I just gave him what he needed in his moment of doubt. Now, listen, if God can use an agnostic to fish, then he can use you. If God can use an agnostic to spread the message of Jesus, then he can do anything, anything. So let me pray for you and I, because to follow is to fish. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I did my best 
Papa, would you help some of us this morning to begin, not all at once, there'll be setbacks and steps backwards, but to begin to surrender our agendas for following for yours. God, we, we see clearly today that your agenda for following looks so different from ours. And you get that. You know that. Your grace and mercy are enough for that. And we're thankful and we're grateful. So Lord, would you just begin to make us into the men and the women that you want us to be because to follow is to fish. In the name of Jesus, amen.